Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and on today's edition of our Comfort's Corner Inside Look at how COVID-19 is affecting public transportation and paratransportation, we have a great episode today. We've got, uh, this is the week of April 6th, and um, we have today headline news from what's happening, some good news that's happening in transit agencies around the country, as well as uh, an interview, a newsmaker interview with Jeff Czar, who's one of the most connected guys in the paratransit industry. I thought today we'd focus on what's happening with demand response and paratransit systems across North America, and he gives us insight into how they're responding. And then happy also to have David Pickrell, uh, who is a uh, basically mobility specialist extraordinaire uh, who wrote chapter 24 for our book, The Future Public Transportation. He reads a portion from his chapter, uh, which is entitled Q&A with David Pickerel. So all that is on today's episode of Transit Unplugged, the Comforts Corner edition. And today I wanted to kick off with some good news. I've noticed that a bunch of transit agencies around the country are basically helping to deliver food. I'll highlight one of them, the RTC. My friend MJ Maynard is a CEO there. The RTC in Las Vegas and Southern Nevada is working with Three Square Food Bank to deliver food to seniors in the community in an effort to ensure those who are unable to leave their homes can receive essential goods through its food bank's senior hunger program. As paratransit ridership has decreased during the COVID-19 pandemic, the agency found an opportunity to use vehicles to continue to serve the public and they're thanking MV transportation drivers who accepted the call to help their community, making them quote, the heroes of the day. MV is one of the many uh, subcontractor companies around the nation that have over 100,000 drivers under contract with transit agencies, and many of them are doing very similar things, helping out uh, the transit industry and helping folks who are their normal riders. Some smaller systems around the country, like uh, my home county, Queen Anne's County, Maryland County Ride, a transit system that I helped found uh, 27 years ago, County Ride has changed all their routes to demand only in Centerville, Maryland. They announced that all fixed routes will be transitioning to a demand service only. And this means that while there will not be a bus making time stops along these routes, you'll still have the ability to get from one location to another. As long as your needed transportation is for essential travel only, they ask you to call the office with as much notice as you can, and a demand bus will meet you to take you to your desired destination. The locations where we're picking you up, they say, uh, and delivering you must both be locations that the fixed route bus would normally be passing. And uh, the change is being made to ensure a higher degree of safety for both the clients and the drivers. And I've noticed this in a number of um, mid-sized transit systems and smaller systems that some of the fixed route work is just being transitioned over to that. Uh, other other uh, ad adaptations to the environment, in Denver, portions of sev several Denver streets were closed over the weekend to vehicles to allow for pedestrian bicycle traffic as residents weather the city's week-long stay-at-home order to combat the spread of the coronavirus. They wanna encourage folks to get outdoors and enjoy themselves. The mayor, Michael Hancock said in a video, whether you're walking, taking a nice jog or a nice bike ride, do us all a favor, he says, practice physical distancing. It's extremely important, no matter what street or road you're on, it's important that we practice these guidelines. So they've opened up some of the streets over the weekend to allow that exactly to take place uh, and give people a little more room, so to speak, to move around. Other agencies are taking interesting tax. The Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority, the RTA, is beginning to use ultraviolet technology, UV-C, to disinfect high traffic areas, canine vehicles, and rooms with sensitive equipment. They've got some um, um, ultraviolet technology in which they can use that in response to an incident that requires a bus or train to be removed from service and disinfected immediately. 
RTA cleaning crews will also be able to use this technology to enhance their cleaning procedures at the bus districts, rail stations, and office spaces. It's a lightweight mobile unit, and it's safe and can plug into a standard wall outlet. And they say that UVC rays can disinfect the bus in less than an hour, according to Flonzi Caver, RTA's Deputy General Manager of Operations. And um, so, um, and they say it's especially effective for disinfecting vehicles used by transit police canine units because chemical disinfectants are not well tolerated by the canines, according to Caver. Um, so that's another interesting approach um, that folks are starting to tune to uh, technology to use them. Also, just uh, another interesting update that came out over the weekend is that sources within the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, Muni, uh, said that a list of remaining lines after service cuts would likely be ready for the service as of Monday, and they're going to stop running a lot of the routes in San Francisco, more than 70 lines, and they hope to have information out early this week on Monday to tell people which lines will still be in, in service. But again, this is a dramatic change, uh, a dramatic impact on the transit system um, to make sure that uh, they're able to help s stop the spread. One of the places where uh, it's hitting hard, of course, is New York City. And uh, you may have heard that 22 New York bus and subway workers have died with coronavirus and another over 1,000 are infected. But the city, the city is still running severely reduced and overcrowded service. And that's been uh, noted by some as a problem. Um, so there's been more than, uh, as you know, over 60,000 cases of COVID in New York. And the MTA is operating on a reduced essential service plan to get key workers to job. But people are concerned that that now means that the subway and some bus routes are packed full of people because they're running less, uh, less vehicles. And so even though there's less people running, they still are kind of jammed in some of these vehicles. So that's a concern that I've heard expressed around the country. There's some agencies in Canada and even Houston that have uh, kept service and in some cases even added vehicles uh, to the line in order to make sure people can keep their social distancing. So all kinds of different approaches today on our headline news portion of the program. Thanks for being with us today on Comfort's Corner. And uh, now we're going to get ready to move into uh, Mike's Minute, which is a good friend of mine, Mike Bismeyer, uh, who is uh, kind of what we call a kindness advocate. And every Monday we give you um, Mike's Monday Minute where he talks about maintaining kindness in this era where everything is kind of tense. Uh, we can still remain kind to one another and he tells us why that's so important. Again, thanks for being with us this week. Stay tuned for the great rest of the show and stay safe out there. Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director of Proterra and welcome to Mike's Minute, where we talk about random acts of kindness, mentorship, and the importance of leading by example whenever possible, in the hopes that it will inspire others to pay it forward. It's been another challenging week in transit as the coronavirus continues to consume resources, time, effort, and bandwidth across the industry in each of our lives. It's times like these, however, when preparing for the worst, that we see the best in many people, those employees, frontline workers, colleagues, and peers that continue to deliver every day and work to make a difference. Mentorship and leadership are not skill sets that you can simply assign. They're mannerisms or traits that we strive to emulate from those whose actions empower us. As we collectively continue to navigate through the COVID-19 crisis in the transit industry, I'm very excited about the character and actions of the industry's countless peers, their efforts, thoughtful initiatives, and continued tireless efforts. The future of public transportation continues to inspire. Have a great week, keep kind, and keep safe.
right. We're with our headline newsmaker today, and that is Jeff Czar, who is a senior consultant for demand response for Trapeze Group. Jeff is one of the most connected guys in the paratransit industry uh, and considered one of the nation's experts when it comes to paratransit and technology. He comes to us today from Florida. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us today on the line. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Yep. Jeff and I worked together many moons ago at Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, where we both were involved in running the paratransit service there. And that really is your expertise, right, Jeff? Tell us a little bit about your background in paratransit, et cetera. Well, um, I don't want to, I'll be, I'll try to be brief, but I, I've got 34 years in uh, the industry. Um, started back uh, the Center for Urban Transportation Studies while I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. So over the years, um, you know, last 30 years have seen a lot of change in the industry, um, but, but certainly nothing quite like what we're going through, uh, what we're going through here. Yeah. So when, when ADA passed, you know, 30 years ago, whatever, the Americans with Disabilities Act, it made paratransit or commensurate paratransit a civil right, which meant that people uh, who could not ride a normal fixed route bus or could not get to the bus stop or whatever had a right to have commensurate paratransit. At the time, it was considered curb to curb, and now a lot of cities have gone door to door. Um, and so you are in touch with dozens of transit agencies around the country on a regular basis in the last couple of weeks and are talking with them about how they are responding to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Tell us about what you're hearing as you talk to them. Well, the number one thing that I'm getting from all of the paratransit agencies, and this, this um, I, and I'm connected uh, on the lower levels too with operators. And, you know, I have been known to hang out in the, in the break rooms and just talk with the operators and get into reservations and scheduling. I, I like to have my, you know, my boots on the ground, my roots are really in operation. So I spend a lot of time. And the number one, um, the number one thing is, is fear, really, it's, it's fear. Um, many transit employees, you know, found, found out during this pandemic that public transportation is considered an essential service. And, you know, a lot of these operators um, have underlying health conditions and, and are, you know, at the high risk group being, being over 60 years old or so. And unlike fixed route operators, pair transit operators need to come in close contact with the passengers. And if you think about the passengers that were traveling, uh, a lot of these passengers have, uh, you know, compromised health uh, systems and uh, travel to and from medical facilities and operators have to secure them in the vehicle. They uh, traditionally go door to door um, some, some of that is changing, uh, depending on the facilities, um, you know, dispatchers, even, you know, that's, that's our operators, dispatchers come into contact with our operators and then workstations, dispatchers, workstations are sometimes shared. You think about the, um, the dispatch window where the, where the operators, you know, check in and check out every, every day. Um, you know, that's a shared work area. The vehicles are often shared, even though everyone's sanitizing the vehicles, but you know, they're, they're worried. They're worried that some part is going to be, is going to be missed in the sanitation process. And then, you know, during this, there's, there's the, the ripple effect, I would say, of decisions, uh, personal decisions that just raise the level of, of anxiety. Will I have a job? There are a lot of operators uh, throughout uh, North America that are getting laid off. I mean, it's, it's, 
not surprising to see in the headlines, uh, transit agencies laying off 120, 140, 150 drivers. The demand for service is down as much as 90%, certainly well over half at all of the transit agencies. Um, I was talking to an operator um, not too long ago, and he was saying, he's like, Jeff, I'm supposed to close on my house. He goes, I don't, I don't know if I should do that. He goes, this is the first house I'm ever going to buy, and I don't know if I'm going to have a job. What if, I get, what if I get the virus? So, you know, others have kids in school. They're worried. About, they're, worried. they're very anxious about their, their health and their, their well-being. That's you know, yeah. And, and what about the, uh, the agencies themselves? So what I'm seeing, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you're hearing the same thing, is that, you know, between 50 and 60% ridership declined for a lot of paratransit services, some more, but uh, the, the ones I'm seeing are about 50 to 60, which reflects what I'm seeing in fixed route, not commuter. Commuter services are down 70 to 90%, but for fixed route, that. So what are, what are paratransit agencies doing? Are they restricting um, trip types? Uh, and are they allowed to do that under ADA? Or are there ways around that? I know that you probably don't want to talk too much about that, but whatever you can tell us without identifying any agencies, what you're seeing. Well, um, some agencies, uh, many agencies are doing just essential trips. And essential trips would be, you know, life-saving medical trips uh, to and from work uh, if they are essential services. So um, that is, is most definitely happening right now. Um, I can tell you that um, this has been an, a, an evolutionary process, a quick evolutionary process yeah. over the course of a month. But they started with um, social, our own social distancing. And so some agencies um, wanted to do give exclusive rides. So, so Paul, it would be just like you would be the only one on the vehicle. And so they came to me and said, can we just give a ride just to one person? I'm like, well, that's interesting. Normally, yes. you want me to help you, you know, improve your efficiency. And yeah. now you want me to ride, give a ride to a single person. I'm like, absolutely, we can do this. So you know, we, we implemented this social distancing to give exclusive rides just to that one passenger and maybe their personal care attendant. Um, and then also limited the vehicle. Some of the vehicles are larger and the transit agencies felt that they could implement this social distancing if they reduce the capacity of the vehicle uh, in half. So um, been helping agencies uh, respond uh, accordingly to that. You know, this goes back to <clears throat> when this uh, pandemic first uh, kind of came on the um, American scene. Most, most folks found out about this, at least in the transit industry, found out about this when we had the tragedies up in uh, the Kirkland, Washington nursing home, where um, someone introduced the, vi- the virus into the nursing home and, and you know, 10 or 11 of the people, uh, unfortunately, uh, passed away. Um, when I heard about that, I, I, I went up to the Seattle area and started working with um, our friend, John Gray, who's a general manager up there for um, the, one of the transit agencies, and also um, worked with um, uh, King County, the folks up in King County, and uh, sat and listened to him, tried to understand uh, everything that they were going through, all of the response plans that they had to put together. And uh, when I came back from that, I, I knew that this was going to be a very serious, serious thing for um, my my people, my, my public transit, you know, paratransit people. And so we started uh, giving um, webinars and we've been doing this 
uh, not only to share the best practices from an operational perspective, like the social distancing and things like that, but also trying to help them implement these um, with their technology that they are, that they have today. And you know, some of the other things, uh, very creative that, um, and it's it's typical of what's happening. Uh, it for most people, for most Americans, and that is we're all coming together and we're all helping in any way possible. And the same is true for these paratransit uh, organizations. Um, there are some folks who have just said, hey, listen, we're going to go pick up your groceries for you. Now, we're not going to take grandma to the grocery store. We're going to go get the groceries for grandma and bring them to her so she doesn't have to go out. Mm. So they started the grocery delivery, which is, you know, that's not a new concept, but it certainly is for paratransit right. people to be doing this. But they were very connected to these people. They felt very comfortable. There's, there's a, you know, there, there's a very tight, uh, I'll, I'll almost say ownership of the operators to their customers, right? They, they treat these yeah, like family. as family, as their customers. Those are my customers. And so it, it wasn't unusual, and, and this happened very quickly for a lot of transit agencies, but they started delivering groceries. Then they started delivering meals, full-cooked meals. And then they started delivering supplies. And then they started transporting health workers, workers who were afraid to start taking public transit because that's how they got to work. And so they started transporting them in either one or two people per vehicle. And, you know, they're just, they're just helping out as best they can. That's wonderful. Are there any other uh, technology, I don't want to say tricks, but, you know, new tools, I guess, that people are using to help adapt to this new environment? Well, <clears throat> a couple of things that we're doing is the vehicle's uh, sanitization, you know, is, is uh, different than it ever has before. It had been before. We always clean, the vehicles were always cleaned, um, you know, at the end of the shifts and everything like that. They come back to the yard and either the operator would clean the, the vehicle or um, they would have someone in the yard clean the vehicle. The, the cleaning of the vehicle is much different now. <clears throat> and these vehicles are being routed back to um, a point where they can get cleaned. If that's the garage, if that is a downtown transit center, but they're getting cleaned um, multiple times a day. So they're, they're implementing these, uh, these breaks, these cleanings uh, as part of the schedule. And it's, it's working out, you know, from a scheduling perspective, it's working out well because these vehicles uh, and, and the capacity overall of the system is way down, you know, 50, 60, 70, as much right. as 90% for some of them. So, um, you know, we're able to work, uh, work with that and, ha and have the vehicles circle around and get, and get cleaned. Um, as is the case on um, fixed route, um, this was primarily because uh, they didn't want the operators to, or the passengers to come into contact with the operators, which is the fare boxes up in the front of the vehicle. They uh, started using the, the rear door of the vehicle and not collecting fares. Well, that translated over to uh, the comparable fixed route service and uh, the, the fares have been waived. Now, all of these things that we're doing, um, there's certain ways in the system that we have to record this because a lot of this, you know, there's billions of dollars, $25 billion became available. Uh, and some of this, uh, some of these alternative type services, food service, meal service, uh, transporting healthcare workers, transporting equipment are all eligible to be um, reimbursed, but you have to track them and you have to be able to demonstrate that you're actually doing this. So as I'm helping people put this, put these, these uh, measures in place operationally, 
we're making sure that we can track all of these so that they can get the proper reimbursement. A um, couple other, two other things that um, that have been pretty pretty common, pretty prevalent, and that is the quarantining of locations. Uh, certain locations we're just not allowed to go to anymore. These would be like uh, assisted living facilities, nursing homes. They're just quarantined. No one's in, no one's out. There's no more you know, trips to or from these locations. Right. Um, and, and then we have the situation where um, people who have been infected and have been documented and verified that they have been infected have gone to certain locations. Well, those locations um, have to be uh, cleaned. And I'm, there's some examples of dialysis centers where people who um, again, we're dealing with this vulnerable population, uh, people who are on dialysis um, tested positive and they've been going to dialysis three days a week. Um, you know, there's other people that are at these locations. So then we have, then we have to get back into, you know, not only do we have to quarantine the location, which, which we do um, with the technology, but we also have to do, uh, be prepared to do the tracing, right? So um, who took, you know, grandma to the, um, to the uh, dialysis center, who is the operator, what vehicle was on, who else do we take to that facility? It's this tracing so that we might be able to determine who else might be, um, you know, exposed to, um, to the virus. So it's, it's, um, it's been a very, very busy time. And, um, you know, I, I work for Trepe Software. Our customer care folks have been also stepping up quite a bit since the um, onset of, of the virus shortly after the first webinar that I, that I gave after returning from uh, King County. Um, there's been a 30% increase in a number of cases that have, been, have come into um, our customer care, our support um, group at, at uh, Trapeze. They are doing a fantastic job implementing all of these little tricks and they're documenting everything because you know, Paul, someday, this is you know, hopefully soon, um, this is going to be this is going to be over, and we have to undo yeah. um, everything that we've that we've set up. So as we're implementing these changes, we're documenting everything. These uh, the documentation itself is is, uh, is is quite mind blowing just to see how they're documenting everything, and we're, we're reaching out to every single one of our uh, customers to make sure that we've contacted them and that they um, are everyone's okay, and you know to see if they need any help. Some of our customers are are very um, self-sufficient and don't need assistance, but others, um, as witnessed by the 30% increase in, in support calls, um, are taking us up on our offer. Very good. Well, Jeff Sarr, Senior Consultant for Demand Response for Trapeze Group, thank you so much for being our guest today and sharing with us what's happening in the world of uh, demand response, paratransit, ADA across North America. Stay safe. You too, Paul. Take care. Thanks. And thank you for being with us today on Transit Unplugged, the Comfort Corner edition. Now we enter the portion where we uh, have a chapter of our book, The Future of Public Transportation, the Amazon bestseller from last month, uh, being read by one of the co-authors. That's right. So The Future of Public Transportation is a runaway phenomenal number one best uh, bestseller uh, across North America on Amazon. It is available for digital download as well as a hard copy for the book. Folks across the world are telling me how much they're enjoying it. I got. Um, 
lots of feedback from all kinds of countries. And most people feel like that, even though the book was written before the COVID virus, uh, it's future-proof generally. And most of the things that we're talking about are still relevant even today. Today, I'm excited to have David Pickrell reading a portion of his own chapter 24, a chapter entitled Q&A with David Pickrell. He's one of the smartest guys in our business. He has a, a resume as long as my arm, and he speaks to audiences around the world about the future of mobility in smart cities. And not only does he focus on technology, but also on how to make solid business models with it and the importance of regulatory compliance and clear governance. And so I asked him to respond to uh, some just general questions. And so he did so, and he reads a portion of that for this chapter. Thanks so much for being with us today as we bring you every other day headline news, um, newsmaker interviews, and a read from our book here on this edition of Transit Unplugged, the Comfort Corner edition. Take care and be safe out there. In response to Paul's question, what do you think is the future of MOS for our cities? I responded, mobility as a service, or MOS, has in recent years become in many circles yet another overused buzzword as well as suffering from association with ban-the-car extremism or usurpation by sellers of discrete products or services. Entirely unnecessarily so. In the often maddening internet-era habit of having to distill everything down and create catchy labels in the attempt to capture the decreasing attention spans of an increasingly distracted audience, pundits, politicians, and productizers have often left behind pun intended, what government, industry, and academia in communities around the world are now actively trying to do at the most basic level. How do we, with the resources we have or can reasonably attain, best use transportation technology and common sense to deploy them now and going forward to provide revenues for business, cut costs for government, and serve the needs of our citizens, constituents, and customers? Significantly, it should never be about eliminating personal vehicles, fixed route mass transit, or any other element of the value chain versus ensuring a seamless mix of options for each journey whilst avoiding the extremes of people either having to purchase vehicles to get around or spend their lives waiting for slow and inefficient scheduled route service to show up. In trying to talk about the next evolution of mobility, whether or not it is ultimately termed MAS, especially here in the U.S., in simple terms, I am inclined towards no less than a per perhaps blasphemous inversion of our national motto, out of one, many. What exactly I mean by that is that I believe that it is fundamentally important that even as planning, selection, and payment functions are consolidated, perhaps in the cloud, again like MAS, an issue for another time, it will be fundamental that end-users are able to reach them via their choice of a single point of access. But then, it will reciprocally be important to be able to deconstruct all of them when needed in an environment of neutrally allowing rapid, uncomplicated, and reliable selection and payment for one or more modes to cover each specific journey portal to portal. Mobility as a service will not be so much a service as it will a movement. Although the automotive world is finally shifting beyond the centennial mindset of everything as a product, recalling some of the most frustrating conversations of my entire career to that effect with OEMs on multiple continents, even the concept of a service does not entirely cover the landscape. 
No one entity, no matter how diverse, can enable this new mobility itself. Rather, it will take collective agreement, followed by active collaboration across open standards, converging the optimal public and private resources for each community. This was, and still is, how the Internet has scaled across global ICT infrastructure and how transportation itself incrementally involved with local services networked with those beyond. MOS in every community needs to start locally and be done with direct engagement by state, provincial, transport, transportation authorities, and national governments providing high-level funding and even more importantly standardization and with an industry and academia involved at every level. To Paul's question, what is the question you didn't ask? I offer, how do we resolve the conflict between private on-demand services and mass transit? The transportation technology world and indeed the mainstream media were ablaze with the news that Uber has incinerated yet another $5.2 billion in second quarter 2019, with as yet no turnaround in profitability. In practical reality, there have been two fires burning for some time. Half a century of data affirms that taxis make little ROI and mass transit none at all, indeed quite the reverse. Fanned by the TNC phenomenon, every U.S. MTA except Seattle and Houston faces progressively lower transit ridership and commensurately reduced fare box return year by year, a slow burn collectively costing taxpayers an order of magnitude more than the individual loss here. Eventually, the mobility market will believe those of us who have suggested for decades that on-demand services can monetize cost takeout over many low-density fixed-route operations. Let me explain exactly how this works. There is a 10% fare box return on a route, equating to a 90% loss. If it is possible to substitute publicly funded TNC, microtransit, or shared mobility from one or more private operators to reduce that loss to 80%, that differential can be monetized as both government savings and industry profit. That sounds simple, but in practical reality it is not. The real artifice and complexity will come using transportation technology including IoT, analytics, AI, CAV and digital twin to gather and analyze ridership, VMT, passenger seat miles, and other data to deploy the right mix of services not only for each individual community, but each demographic within that community. In so doing, the ability to Pareto optimize, adjust G2B subsidies versus B2C recoupment to ensure that all populations are served and all providers compensated is eminently achievable.